That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today on the show, we have AJ Harbinger. So AJ is the host of the Art of Charm podcast, and AOC is one of the top 50 podcasts in the world. That's right, one of the top 50 podcasts worldwide. They've been at it for more than 10 years, and the emphasis of their show is wide-ranging, but really on human connection and communication. So they have guests on to talk about everything from public speaking to emotional mastery to interpersonal dynamics to social anxiety to pitching, presenting, selling, and AJ has become this wealth of knowledge, understanding really the best practices, techniques, everything you can think of to connect deeply with people and just be yourself in the world. Uh, But outside of just being an amazing interviewer, uh, AJ is really powerful at synthesizing uh, all of these ideas into these really neat packages that we can learn from. And so outside of just taking in this so much information, he's really started to create his own framework based off of like what he's understood. And outside of the podcast, they also host their own retreats of actually taking men offline. They have this house in California where they they bring people for actual retreats where they can basically learn about social confidence, human dynamics, you name it. And one of the things that I really respect about AJ is that they have incredible online products and they do all sorts of coaching, but he really sees that getting people in front of one another, actually getting them to workshop what it is they're learning, getting them to practice it, leads to this kind of embodied learning where people fundamentally transform. And he is a guy who really believes in the stuff that he talks about. And so not only is he really passionate about it, but he's really freaking good at it. And so the big idea that we're going to talk about today on the show is one that I love and one that fundamentally transformed this experience I had about a year ago at this uh, high-level conference. And the idea is that everything happens one conversation at a time. And I'm going to let him go deeper into what that means. But that simple idea, one conversation at a time, will fundamentally transform how you interact with people, how you show up at business, at the next conference you're going to, whatever it is. So without further ado, here is AJ Harbinger, Enjoy. Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? I'm so excited to have AJ Harbinger here with me today in sunny Brooklyn, Treeline Street. AJ, how are we doing? I'm great. I'm happy to be in New York. Normally I'm in LA, so it's a nice change of pace. So this has been a conversation that's been long coming. Uh, AJ transformed an experience that I had at a, at a conference about a year ago um, and is someone who I have so much admiration and respect for. Um, as I was telling him earlier today, I feel like there are a lot of people that are drawn to the arena of like human connection and wanting to bring people together. And in my opinion, there are very few people who have systemized impact in such a profound and wide-reaching way. And so the business that he has uh, co-founded is called The Art of Charm. And so, AJ, if you were going to tell someone what The Art of Charm is, how would you describe that? Well, I would first off like to thank you for that amazing introduction. And I'm I'm blushing with that. (laughs) I think The Art of Charm for us is understanding how to be our real selves around strangers and 
understanding how to connect in a deeper real way. And so what drew you to this initially? What was like the first spark where you realized this was something you were passionate about? Well, I was in my 20s and I was in graduate school and I was struggling in the dating realm, wanted to get better with women and was also getting some negative feedback on the way people perceive me. And we were sort of laughing on the scoot over here, uh, whether or not I'm an introvert or an extrovert. And I am an introvert. And I, I do have, feel my energy zapped when I have long conversations and I'm forced to be social. And because of that, I built up these walls that unfortunately people viewed as arrogant, aloof, uninterested, uh, which was certainly not how I was feeling internally. So I was sort of drawn into social dynamics and conversation because I wanted to get better with the opposite sex. And I knew that my first impression was turning off uh, people that I looked up to and, and people that my career depended on. And so what, when did you find your unique stride in terms of, that was probably around what year that that was happening? Oh, so man, this was 2007. And one of the most incredible things is that when I talked to AJ about his business and he talks about being there for 13 years and I realized that like in the get rich quick, make money fast kind of world to be with a company for 13 years, uh, you've got to really love it. And so he's been at this a very long time and is really a wealth of wisdom. So when, when you started in 2007, like the pickup artist movement is like full steam ahead. When did you find your unique thread or approach to this type of work? Well, of course, we were fascinated by that movement and looking at some of the materials that were out there, uh, trying some of them ourselves, feeling unnatural, feeling weird. Can you actually, can you, uh, one of the things I like to do here is when we use words like the pickup artist movement, it's like, yeah. how, what, what is that for people who are not familiar? Well, I think, you know, it started as a point for a lot of people to learn about self-development, but it was geared mostly towards building attraction with women. And, you know, pickup artistry was very much this idea of how can I get a one night stand and how can I essentially get sex from a woman that's a stranger? Yeah. And obviously... If that's your goal, it can lead to some very messy outcomes and some strategies that are pretty manipulative yeah. and, and downright dishonest. So as much as we were drawn to this idea and concept of being a more attractive guy, a more masculine guy who could attract essentially anyone yeah. and not waiting for the world to deliver you, your, your spouse, your significant other, uh, we worked on our own content around, okay, understanding that there are some science based ideas that pickup artists are using to get people interested and to persuade people. There's obviously a lot of negative connotation with all of that. And for us, we didn't want to become another person. We wanted to be a better version of ourselves. Yeah. And as I discovered that whole area, uh, looking for dating advice, you know, I was led astray and, and felt that I was being manipulated by some of the material as much as they were manipulating others. So we started a show with the very frank discussion around our journey and becoming pickup artists, right? Mm. And I kind of laugh about that now, but the show is Pickup Podcast. And I think what we brought to the conversation was some vulnerability, some honesty about, hey, I read this, I tried this, it didn't work, I didn't feel good, what's, what's the deal here? And I think, you know, the community at that time was, was clamoring for this level of honesty 
because a lot of it was fictionalized. A lot of it was, you know, happening in LA, but it was not really principles that you could transfer to the Midwest, which is where I'm from. So we were able to build an audience of young men, mostly in the Midwest who didn't live on either coast, who wanted to be better with the opposite sex. And through that journey of trying to get better with the opposite sex, I learned a lot about myself. And that was my discovery point of just self-development in general, that, hey, I can work to better myself in areas outside of academics, which is where my focus had been up until that point. Yeah. And so tell us a little more about the man behind The Art of Charm. And so when you were starting these things, what were you like? Well, I was definitely introverted. I was definitely curious and scientific. So, you know, I was working on a PhD in cancer biology at Michigan when the show started. Hmm. So I was moonlighting, recording podcasts in the evening with some gin and tonics and then going out and trying to socialize. So I was juggling a lot of things and my science work started to get the least of my attention and the podcast started to gain some momentum. And as we were talking about at lunch, a lot of the listeners started to ask us for coaching. So, you know, it never started with the idea of I'm going to be an entrepreneur or a businessman. I was set on being a scientist and I knew that was going to make my dad proud. That was my story that I brought to the conversation. And then as the podcast grew, we had an opportunity to move to New York and start a a full-fledged coaching company. And I sort of put my science on pause, told my family I was leaving and, and moved here to New York 10 years ago now. And the business, uh, essentially, you know, started as one-on-one intense coaching work with clients that would stay with us in an apartment in Manhattan for a month. To do what? To learn how to attract women, of course, and to focus on their own confidence levels and deal with some of their insecurities. And what's fun about that work, as we've been talking about at lunch, is, you know, a lot of us bring some broken stories and narratives about ourselves to that equation, some baggage right? That, that river analogy we talked about. And with all of this baggage, you know, we're outcome dependent. So we want to find this other person to make us whole. We want to find this other person who's so attractive. And with that, uh, a lot of our work started to shift from just the external stuff, right? How to be better in conversation and how to have the soft skills, but then the internal work of, Hey, what about these nagging insecurities? They're not going to go away if you get a great job or you get a girlfriend. They're still going to be there. So we got to unpack that. And a lot of these insecurities are keeping us from that deeper connection. Yeah. And that was really one of the epiphanies we had early on was, okay, there's more to the story than just attraction. And I think that's how the company's been able to grow since then. And, and now attraction is one small part of what we teach at The Art of Charm. Yeah. One of the words that you said there that I think is so important, when you say outcome dependent, uh, it's such a powerful thing. Can you make that term more real for the listeners and what you mean by that? Yeah. I think for many of our listeners at that time, the outcome that they were most focused on was a girlfriend, a beautiful woman to find them sexually attractive. Hmm. And when we put our focus externally on on some one goal, and that goal has really less to do with us and more to do with someone else actually taking interest in us, we do ourselves a disservice. And through all of this work on self-development, what I've come to realize is the process and focusing on the process being process dependent is actually where the benefit lies. So if we tie ourselves to the outcome, oftentimes we're going to be pretty disappointed when we don't get that outcome. 
But if we focus on the process, we start to enjoy the journey. We start to soak up more knowledge and experience, which builds that confidence for us. Yeah. And so this feels like a, a beautiful segue into uh, your big idea for the show. And so like, as we've talked about, we, we created What's the Big Idea to bring people on who have a, a wealth of wisdom, but really to synthesize or focus on a singular idea or a piece of wisdom that they wish more people could integrate into their lives. And so from the hundreds, thousands of people that you've interviewed now for the podcast, yeah, thousands, um, what is the big idea that you want to share with our audience? Everything starts with one great conversation is really the focus for us at The Art of Charm. And I think when you think about all the amazing relationships in your life and the relationships that lead to other adventures, experiences, and other connections in your network, they all get distilled down to one great conversation where there's vulnerability, there's showcasing a side of yourself that attracts or interests the other person. And through all of that, you're able to build this rich life that we all look for. And my biggest frustration when I got started was this concept that as an introvert, my goal was to run around and talk to everybody. That was the only way to get success. And whether that's in a bar, in a dating realm, or in a networking event. And this idea of like being this person who can just talk to everyone and everyone is interested in, it's overwhelming. It's totally. scary. And for me, it's exhausting. It's, it's emotionally and physically draining for me to do that. So I always wanted to utilize the extrovert's tools but I didn't want to become the extrovert because I'm not hardwired to be the extrovert. So shifting my focus to one great conversation and allowing myself to leave the event after that one great conversation and not force myself to be someone I'm not has created all these amazing experiences in my life. And I know the first time we met, right, we were brought together by a mutual friend and we were laughing at lunch. That mutual friend I knew from back in the day when I was here in New York and we would host a brunch and he was a super connector. He knew a lot of people and, and he provided an opportunity for me to grow my network, but it all started with one great conversation with him. Yeah. I didn't have to run the room, so to speak. Yeah. And it, so where, where this really impacted me and where I, I really started to like AJ is we, we went to this conference together called Summit Series. I think I actually snuck you in that night, yeah. which was nice. But so as we're going there, you know, Summit Series is this, this conference that I've been going to for many years. And it brings together a lot of really influential entrepreneurs, artists, creatives, you name it. And the reality for me is that, you know, from going there when I was 24 years old, I remember having almost like a mini panic attack, walking into that room for the first time, being filled with this imposter syndrome as a 24-year-old social entrepreneur running a small nonprofit and like sitting three chairs away from Mark Cuban. And I'm like, what does Mark Cuban want to do with me? Nothing. What is Ariana Huffington going to say to me in a conversation? How am I going to contribute value? And so it's the idea that when I was walking back into that event this year, this is now, you know, eight years later from my, my first time going, I was actually presenting on team communication. And so I was feeling good. But when you walk into that first room and there's 800 really successful entrepreneurs, there can be a lot of anxiety, overwhelming of like, who do I talk to? How is this going to go? What am I going to say? And then I just remember that I asked you like, so what's your favorite piece of advice to give people? And as we're looking at this, just ocean of all these entrepreneurs, you just say, it's always just one conversation at a time. And so it was so true that again, it's like I was trying to process and plan for how all of these different conversations were gonna go, all these different interactions. And ultimately it was just gonna happen one at a time. And when I did that, I felt this release of some tension that I was feeling again, because I was just like, 
all I need to do is just be present with whoever's right across from me and that's enough. And then it will happen again. And so I've, I've offered that to so many people because I think it's such a fundamental frame that we can bring into our conversations. It's really helpful. And so what I'm curious about for you is that, so if you can offer that frame to someone and say one conversation at a time, when you are locked into that place of presence and looking someone in the eyes and you're just there, where do you go from there? Well, I think the big thing, and, and this is something that you talk about, is adding curiosity to the equation and asking questions of others. And it's one of our favorite tools in our conversation formula that we give all of our clients. This idea that if, if we can instill curiosity and simply try to find out what someone else's story is, that is going to open a window of opportunity to great conversation. We're never going to go into a room and impress people by talking about ourselves and trying to get them interested in us. The only way people are going to find us interesting is if we're actually interested in them. And that idea, you know, you have to add another step to that equation in our conversation formula, which is if we're going to ask a question of someone, we're asking a lot of them to share. We then too have to share as well. And I think that's where a lot of people screw things up. They're like, great, AJ, ask questions. And they become this interviewer and just rapid fire questions. And then when they leave that interaction, the other person doesn't really know them mm. because they didn't share. So our conversation formula is we ask a question of the other person. We practice a lot of listening. And that involves presence, obviously. And we talked a little bit about the different levels of listening at lunch, and, and I'll break that down in a second. But then the, the third part of our equation is, is we have to then make a statement and disclose something about ourselves, thoughts, feelings, ideas. Mm. And that disclosure doesn't have to be in agreement with that person. It can literally be, oh, I've, I've never been there. I've never experienced that. But that disclosing statement powers the conversation. And when I think about conversation, and, and I, I tell all of our clients to visualize conversation as a tennis match. And a tennis match doesn't work if only one person is knocking the ball over the net. You need that volley back and forth to have a real conversation. And that's why the question, answer, statement formula that we use provides a framework for all of our clients to know, okay, all I have to do is be a little curious. I don't have to memorize a crazy joke or some line that someone else uh, came up with. I can just take some curiosity, think about the person and what I want to know about the person, become a better listener, understanding the emotional context of their conversation, and then start disclosing about myself, my own thoughts, feelings, adventures. And when that happens, that's the magic we're talking about. Yeah. And I want to bring it down even more into the, the granular level here. It's like when we talk about curiosity, which I think people can understand at a surface level, but in terms of how to cultivate curiosity, like for people who might be saying like, I don't have the questions or like maybe I've seen some on a page, but how can someone cultivate curiosity so that they start to do that more naturally and more effectively in conversation? Well, one of my favorite questions to ask someone new is what they're excited about. And the reason I like that conversation is because it's anchored to a positive emotion. Uh, so naturally it's going to put that person that you're asking the question into a, a positive headspace. Mm -hmm. And number two, it involves the future. And most of us are pretty optimistic about the future. Uh, you know, we talk about the past and some of us have had a rough past and it can take us in some, you know, negative emotions and some negative direction. So focusing on excitement in the future, I think is a great way to evoke positive emotion in the other person and get them excited to answer. 
And everyone has something they're looking forward to or they're excited about, whether mm. it's a trip or something at work or something with their children. So that level of curiosity at the start around positive emotions is a quick and easy way to get the conversation going. Yeah. There's a there's an exercise in this uh, communication framework I practice called Gestalt, and they have this curiosity exercise, which you wake up in the morning and you go to sleep at night and you say, what do I want to know about myself and about the world? And you come up with as many things as you can think about. Or if you're meeting someone that day, what do I want to know about that person? And I've always liked the idea that you can almost cultivate curiosity like a muscle of like something that if you actually just think about that, of like if AJ sits down, if you're someone who doesn't think that maybe they're inherently curious, that they have these questions, that if you're getting ready to go and sit down with someone before you go there, just asking yourself, what do you said this before? What do I want to know about this person of like that anchor into what do I want to know about this person and how many things can I actually write down that's authentic so that I'm not just asking a question, but here's what I genuinely want to know about that person. And those can guide us deeper into conversation. Yeah. And I think a lot of people hate small talk. They find small talk to be boring, monotonous, and some people even avoid events because they just know it's going to be small talk. Well, small talk is the, the byproduct of asking surface questions that you don't care the answer to. Yeah. You don't really care what the weather is. You don't really care about where someone's from. That's not very meaningful information to you, but we default to these surface level questions because of our own anxieties, because of patterns we've picked up in other interactions. And then we get frustrated when the conversation isn't as exciting as we had hoped. And so that leads me to a question about, I think a lot of times when I work with people as well and, and I say, ask the questions that you want to know. And so if that's what's exciting or what's your dream or what's challenging, and they say, but what if the person I'm talking to doesn't want to talk about those deep things. What do you say to that person who's afraid of asking questions that someone might not be ready to answer? So when we're asking questions, we're essentially asking someone to enter a dark cave with us. Hmm. And it can be scary for some people. Some people who are extroverted and love talking about themselves will just hop to that opportunity to walk into the cave. In that opportunity where someone doesn't respond to our question or maybe they're not ready to, to talk about what they're excited about or, or what they're nervous about or what the next challenge for them is, then we need to shine the flashlight in that cave. And the way we turn on that flashlight is we disclose that answer. So mm. we tell them what our biggest challenge is. We tell them what we're excited about. And the simple act of us disclosing oftentimes will jog people's memories and get them thinking of like, oh, this is actually what I can add. So we have to lead the way. We turn on that flashlight by answering that question in those moments where people might feel a little uneasy about sharing. Yeah. One of the things that we often say at our, our men's work weekends is when you share all of, your all of yourself, you create space for other people to do the same. And so it can inherently be an act of service that's in there. Absolutely. And so tell me your thoughts about, so if we're asking questions, what is the practice of listening? Of how do we do that effectively? So... There's actually five levels to listening. Yeah, beautiful. And we had a phenomenal guest on last year talking about this, and, and he blew my mind. This idea of five levels of listening, you know, I think a lot of us, we think, oh, I'm a great listener, right? And a lot of us are in work roles where we have to listen, and our job depends on our ability to pick up and synthesize information. And unfortunately, those roles tend to focus on the first level of listening, which is just the content. Mm -hmm. So that's just the words, the data, the information that's being exchanged. The second level is the context, and that's the emotions that are being exchanged. The third level is actually the unsaid. Mm -hmm. 
So the unsaid, even in this interview, right? I'm I'm choosing my words wisely. I'm I'm sharing some stories, but I'm not sharing some things. And as we start to hone our listening skills and focus on these deeper levels, we start to pick up on the totality of the conversation of what that person's saying. The fourth level is now when we're getting into the deeper meaning, right? Mm. So when someone chooses to share something, they're going to tell you the data. Oh, this happened to me here. They're going to share the context, which is the emotion. They're going to withhold some details that might make them look bad. Then, right, there's a deeper meaning to why they're sharing that, right? Mm. What is the lesson they want us to learn? What do, we, what do they want us to know about their personality? Why is this so important that they share it with us? And what's the word for that level, the fourth level? The fourth level is the meaning. Got it, meaning, it, right? got it. And then lastly, the, the fifth level is now understanding how this fits in that person's narrative. And we all have a narrative in our life that we're trying to share with the world. And oftentimes this narrative is the driving force behind us. So mm. you can think of the narrative around motivations, right? And, and how that impacts their future. So as we start to distill down these levels of listening, I find that a lot of us really focus on the first level and we kind of pick up a little bit on the second level. Mm. Um, but real connection starts to happen at this third and fourth level, right? Where someone now feels understood and feels accepted. And I think that's really important. So when we talk about listening, uh, I'm not just talking about your ears and paying attention to the words that are coming in. We listen with our eyes. We make good eye contact so we can read emotional expression. We can pick up on uh, hand gestures and excitement and enthusiasm in what someone's communicating. Uh, just like we can pick up on signals like crossed arms and withdrawing and, and making ourselves smaller. Maybe we're feeling a little embarrassment or shame around what we're sharing. So when we hone our listening skills, we're, we're using more of our faculties than just auditory. And I think that's another important perspective for the audience. As we go through all of our drills in our week-long boot camp with our clients, we teach them how to use their body language to open people up, to mm. make people more expressive and responsive. And part of that is actually positioning yourself next to someone instead of directly facing them. Hmm. Uh, this, even though we're in an interview directly facing each other, there is a little bit of tension here because we're giving ourselves fully yeah. to one another. And fortunately, we know each other, so it's a lot easier. But with strangers, this positioning can actually be very intimidating. How do you sit with your podcast guests? Uh, so actually, we have two co-hosts and a guest. So yeah. unfortunately, one of us is shoulder to shoulder or, or side facing the other host. So yeah, yeah. it's it's a triangular formation. It's not necessarily ideal for, for the conversations we hope to have when we're networking or we're out meeting people. But that said, we always, outside of the interview in the studio, we try to interact with our guests shoulder to shoulder as if we're already friends. And it creates this connection that they're feeling subconsciously right yeah, because totally. when we're interacting with friends we're often not facing each other and so you talked about with these deeper levels of meaning in the narrative and you kind of align those with people feeling seen and accepted and yeah. i and i love that idea again of just because you heard the words that somebody said they didn't, doesn't necessarily mean that they feel like you got it and that you're cool with it or you accept them for that how do you do that how do you how do you tap into these deeper levels of listening to the point where you can evoke those types of feelings in the people that you're with. Absolutely. We teach value and value is the foundation of what we do at the art of charm. As humans, we have three basic needs when it comes to connecting with one another. 
that's acceptance, mm. that's appreciation or approval, mm. and that's attention. So when we think about why we post on social media, why we hit record on the podcast, why we interact with one another, the first is to get attention, right? No one wants to talk to someone who's not listening to them or has their AirPods on. So we focus on giving people our full attention. And much like now, we put our phones in silent airplane mode so we could be fully present. Unfortunately, a lot of us, when we're out trying to meet people, we are thinking about that next thing. We are thinking about that phantom vibration in our pocket. <laughs> so attention is the very first level of value. We all, when we're trying to communicate, crave attention. And you can think about it as a child, right? What do we do? The first thing that we do with our parents to get attention, we cry. Right? We cry mm. out for them. Hey, pay attention to me. The second level is appreciating them, right? How can you give them some approval? And that is deeper than just attention, right? Appreciating is finding something about the other person that interests you, inspires you, excites you, that resonates with yeah. you. And of course, to find that, we have to listen a little more intently, right? So we often joke that we ask our clients, how do we connect? How do you connect with someone? And they go, oh, commonalities and common interests. And it's like, well, you know, I'm not necessarily interested in Burning Man, but I still want to be friends with you. And you're really passionate about Burning Man. Yeah. So does that mean we can't be friends because we don't have a common interest? Absolutely not. Yeah. Right. So we don't actually connect on interest. We connect on emotion. Emotion is shared. Hmm. And your excitement for Burning Man might be the excitement that I have for a golf trip with my friends. Right. Looking forward to this experience. So the more we can hone in on emotion understand other people's emotions, the easier it is for us to connect. Brilliant. And appreciation is finding something about their personality that you actually enjoy and excites you and intrigues you. And when we're looking to give value, we're not giving surface level compliments. We're giving personality tied compliments. Mm. So you say to someone like, I dig your tenacity, right? You've been in business for 12 years. I, I dig your determination. Uh, I dig your creativity, right? If you're talking to an artist, these are all personality trait based words of appreciation that give that person value. And then acceptance is the third level of value. And that is truly welcoming someone into your tribe or your community, right? That's hanging out with them again. That's trying to build a friendship. So we say give everyone value at the Art of Charm. What does that mean? Well, first, just give people attention. Yeah. It's the easiest way to do it. Start appreciating their personality more. And then the ones that you really enjoy, welcome them into your life, invite them over, invite them to hang out, spend time with you. And when we focus on giving value instead of taking value, we actually become someone who is connected and is someone that people want to spend time with. We talk about low value behaviors and we look at ways that we try to take that value from other people. So what are some ways that we can try to get value from others or get their attention or words of appreciation? Well, the lowest level is to supplicate or to beg for their attention. Hmm. Please like me. Yeah. Right? Agree with everything they say. Oh, I love Burning Man too. Oh, that's so amazing. Yeah. Even though internally you don't, right? That's yeah. low value behavior. Second is to be combative and like angry, right? Like, oh, pay attention to me. You know, think of someone spreading out, being loud over the top yeah. vocally to get people's attention. Third low value behavior is competitive, right? It's like one upper. It's constantly saying, oh, that's great, but what about this? Mm. And I was talking to my 
fiance today and, and one of her coworkers happens to have this refrain where someone will be sharing a story and then she has to say how she did something better or yeah. was there before that person. And we don't realize that these behaviors are us crying out for that value, trying to take attention, trying to get those approval trying to get that appreciation or approval and ultimately to get that acceptance. Mm -hmm. High value is giving that to others, not looking to take it for yourself. Hmm. What a shift. And so when did, as I, as I've gotten to know you, that feels like such a foundational value, the idea of giving more than you take. When did that become a central tenant of AOC and everything you guys do? Honestly, that was a big part of the genesis of AOC. As we saw the pickup artist community and self-development for men especially hone in on how to take, manipulate, persuade, convince, trick people hmm. into liking you. Those are all behaviors of taking. Yeah. And we saw that as one being out of character for us. And two, we didn't see that as effective long-term. Right. And it's, it's very short term thinking, like get this girl to like me for a night, get this person to hang out with me for a few hours, get this person to give me their business card or get me on their podcast. And that, that short term thinking doesn't actually lead to success. You know, whether you follow Gary V or, or some of the other more successful entrepreneurs out there, we're seeing this message time and time again. Now give more than you take, give without expecting anything in return. And over the long haul, right? 10, 20, 30 years, your lifetime, which is what we're talking about. You're going to see results. You're going to see dividends. Yeah. I just, I just had a massive revelation in that arena. I was listening to a great book called the prosperous coach by rich Litvin. Have you ever heard of it? No. But one of the things he talks about is he just, he so powerfully synthesizes that idea about adding value and how it will come back to you. And he spoke very directly to how many people take like business development calls that are 15 minutes of like schedule, like a free 15 minutes. And like, we'll go through the thing. And he was like, I don't take any meeting with someone I actually want to work with that's less than an hour. He's just like, I want to sit down with them and know that I'm going to fundamentally solve an important problem in their life. And if I can do that for them, even if they can't work with me right then, they're going to refer me to every single one of the people in their network who wants to work with me. And so each one of those opportunities where someone is interested in some capacity of what you do to just know that you're going to be committed to adding value to them and how that's going to come back. And it really shifted like a, a scarcity mindset that I had about those kinds of like lead development, BD calls that I already feel so much better about. And so you so beautifully, you know, broke that down. And so now we've come through curiosity. We've come into listening. And so the final one, which is about connecting, right? Well, is it so you said there was one more that was it was there was curiosity, there was listening, and then there was oh you tell me it's your equation. So it's is it what's the the next aspect? So we're walking in, we think about curiosity, listening. Was there one more? Statements, which are, Yes, there you go. So statements. That's what I was looking for. And so and what I wanna kind of qualify here before we get into statements is I would I would posit that this is the piece that is most challenging for a lot of people, especially those who are dealing with social anxiety, shyness, is the idea in their head, the internal dialogue that they don't have anything to say or that they don't trust what they have to say, that they're not funny, that they're whatever it is, is that that they feel like they don't have anything to say. And so when you talk about these statements, um, that's how do you how do you pause this in a way for people who say they don't have anything to state? State that. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> You laugh, but 
honestly, some of the best conversations I've had are literally me saying I'm drawing a blank or I've never experienced that. And that provides a platform for that person to share more of the excitement and the enthusiasm. Oh, well, let me tell you about trekking the Himalayas. A lot of times we feel internally that conversation has to be full of fireworks, bang, boom, magic. It's not the case at all. Conversation is simply providing a platform for the other person to feel safer, adding more information, more about themselves. And Mm. Johnny, uh, my business partner and co-founder has a great analogy for this. You know, picture a jar in front of us and we each have a handful of jelly beans and conversation is just each one of us throwing a jelly bean into the jar. And if at the end of that conversation, the jar is just full of my green jelly beans, but doesn't have any of your red jelly beans, how do you think I'm going to feel? Well, I'm going to feel taken advantage of. I'm going to feel that you don't actually care about me, that you're not interested in me. But if I see that jar is full of red and green jelly beans, I'm going to feel like, wow, I know a lot about you. And, and I actually feel like, you know, a lot about me. So We use disclosing statements and those disclosing statements can literally be the first thing that pops into your head. So one of the exercises we do with our clients who feel a little tongue tied, who feel like they're not interesting or they don't have anything to say is improvisational comedy and improvisational comedy is all based on this concept of yes. And comedy, especially improv comedy doesn't work if all you're doing is taking from the skit. You have to provide a platform for the other people on stage to add to the joke, to add to the entertainment. So the the core principle of improv is agree with that person saying and add something to it. Yes, and. So we use improvisational comedy to grease the wheels for that quick wit and remove those barriers that introverts, shy people, socially anxious people have put on their own words, thoughts, and feelings. And we find that through this exercise of improv, you start to have some moments where people laugh because you blurted out what you were thinking and it's actually what everyone else was thinking. It's the obvious comedy. You blurted out something that you were thinking that is different than what everyone else is thinking but is so striking. It's also fun and engaging. So that's a tool that we use in our boot camp to start to stretch and strengthen that muscle of quick wit and just being more open and vulnerable, which is what a statement is. It's, it's sharing, oh, I've never been to Burning Man. Uh, I actually don't really enjoy being out in the desert for a week without showering, right? That's a disclosing statement. That allows you to know a little bit more about me instead of me going back, oh, what camp are you staying at? Or, oh, what are you packing to Burning Man? And you can see over time, you're going to be like, but wait, AJ, like, I don't know anything about what you enjoy or, or your experience with Burning Man. So we are trying to break that vicious cycle of question, question, question. Yeah. And when you find yourself asking too many questions, you're basically interviewing someone and it's going to create a dynamic that they don't like. So we use the formula for our clients as a simple framework for conversation to start, right? As the conversation builds, we start adding statements. Then we start moving towards connection and we want those statements to not only talk about the facts of our life, not our resume or our background, but the emotions we're feeling. Mm. And as we've talked about at lunch, right, that can be challenging for us as men to tap into our emotions and actually be willing to share our emotions. Yeah. And how do you decipher between when the context is appropriate for that kind of depth? So 
we always start with positive emotions. So again, which is even going back to that original question, right? What are you excited about? Um, we want to start sharing our own positive emotions first, and then it's the art of charm, right? We have to pay attention to what the other person's sharing. And, you know, if I share a red jelly bean, I throw a jelly bean into the jar and, and you get up and leave, then it's a pretty clear signal that I said something that wasn't going to resonate with you or, or turned you off. So we are always working on gaining experience to know that, right? There's no conversations, not binary. It's not ones and zeros. Hmm. What I say might resonate with you, but if I said that same thing to 10 other people, you know, four of them might not resonate with it or enjoy it. So it's not about memorization or hard and fast rules. It's more about tapping into presence, being in the moment, being willing to share. And over the sum total of those conversations, you're going to find that some people like you, some people don't, but your ability to share will become strengthened. And in your conviction and confidence, you'll be more comfortable being yourself. Yeah. And it, one of the things I love about your approach there is just the idea of you're not stating the the right thing or the thing that's going to have a specific impact. It's the real thing, right? Exactly. It's just opening up to what is real and becoming more aware of that and understanding that releasing that, offering it into conversation is ultimately what's going to be most effective. And I completely believe that the more we come into conversations scripted, the more likely they are to fail. Hmm. So we oftentimes will map out in our head like, okay, I'm going to say this sick joke and you're going to laugh and then I'm going to follow it up with this and this is my punchline. And we, we joke, I believe it was Mike Tyson said it, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. Conversation's the same way. You're going to throw something out there and someone else is going to free associate what you said with another experience that you were not anticipating. So the more you try to think three, four steps ahead and plan out the conversation, the more likely it is to fail. So everything that we're doing and talking about here is developing the skills to think on your feet, to be fully present in the moment, and to start paying attention to the right signals that people are sending instead of getting bogged down in the details and the data that doesn't really help you. And so as we move through this, and this is just so powerfully lined up, uh, when you say the word connection, so after we move through questions, we move through listening, uh, we then move into, why am I blanking on the word again? Statements. Statements. Thank you. Statements. And then we move into connection. So when you say the word connection, what does that mean to you? What is connection? So connection as we teach it is when someone knows your narrative and your narrative is made up of three layers, your past, your present, and your future. Hmm. And connection starts through story. So if you think about all the great religions in the world, they're shared through story. Hmm. It's stories that we tell that illustrate where we came from and start to give you the listener some perspective on who we are. So when we want to connect, we want to provide a space for others to share stories as well as for us to start sharing some stories. And for most part, all of us are going to share our past with strangers because it is something that for the most part, we're not going to be judged too harshly or critically on compared to our present or our future. And it allows that other person to know us in a slightly deeper way than just the surface of, oh, how's the weather? Oh, where are you from? 
as we move through and connect with one another, we want to start expanding and sharing more of that narrative. And your present is your thoughts, beliefs, and uh, ultimately your emotions and your morals and your values. Those are a little bit harder to share. We don't come out of the gate being like, hey, you know, I'm Catholic or, hey, I'm fiscally conservative uh, with strangers that we meet. But it is certainly a part of your narrative. It guides your behaviors and actions in the here and now. Your values are going to inspire you to take action or to avoid something. So after sharing a little bit of stories about our past, we're going to move into sharing our values. And then the last part of our narrative, and oftentimes the hardest part of our narrative to share, is our future. And your future is made up of your goals, your aspirations, as well as your fears. Fears guide our future. We move away from things that scare us. Hmm. And unfortunately, that is very challenging for us to share because people will often hear your goals and think, oh, that's not possible. Your aspirations, you can't do that. Or they might hear your fears and use that against you later. So we guard our future from strangers. We don't share it willingly. And, and because of that, we often find ourselves with surface connections. People know a little bit about our past. They don't really know what our values are. They don't really know where we're going. And because of it, they can't support us. They can't feel connected to us. And we don't have a real relationship with them. So our exercises in our week-long boot camp are geared towards building a stronger narrative understanding and handling some of that past that maybe you haven't shared with others, starting to think more clearly about what your core values are. Uh, we certainly feel in the modern world we don't spend enough time, especially as we move into young adulthood, uh, thinking about what our values are. We oftentimes take our values from our parents and just absorb them as our own, but we don't critically think about them. So we have some writing exercises to really hone in on your values and allow you an opportunity to share them with others and have them received in a positive manner. And then we use very basic structures to develop out your future. Uh, another writing exercise, uh, similar to what Jordan Peterson does with the self-authorship program. So literally sitting down to write your movie. What is your future? And, and direct that movie visually in your head. So at the end of this exercise, you've got some stories that share your past and how you got to this point. You have your values, and now they're clarified in a way that you can share them with others so people can resonate on your values. And when you talk about your future, much like we started lunch with today, right? When you ask me, you know, what, what is the plan for AOC? Where do you want to take things? Well, you as a great listener and uh, amazing friend are listening because you're like, oh, well, what are the ways that I can help AJ in this, this mission, this, this future for him? Now we're connected in a much deeper way. And we've moved away from those surface relationships that we all dread, right? Going to the network event, small talk, exchange business cards. Oh, okay, I know AJ's from Detroit. And then we kind of leave it at that. That's not a connection. So crafting a powerful narrative and then getting comfortable sharing that narrative is how we end the week. And that's truly how we connect through those stories. You know, it's powerful. It's like when you talk about this about connection, like a lot of, I do a lot of work with men and we talk about things like masculinity and race and gender and like these labels that people use to qualify, like who they are. And as you talk about that, I'm like, that's who you are. There's like those things as you talk about it, your past, your present, what's there, your values, your beliefs, your future, your dreams, your fears. And it's like true. It's like having an understanding of those things 
at least for me, it's like, as you've been talking about, again, being outcome oriented, that if you don't know who you are in a framework like that of your past, your present, your future, then you're just looking to get validation from everyone else to find out who you are, right? Yeah. Or that you are enough as opposed to creating that on your own. So it's incredibly powerful, man. And those labels, again, are externally placed, right? Yeah. It's someone else viewing your race, viewing your um, uh, career and saying, oh, you're a scientist. And when we do that, we give away our power. Yeah. Right. When we allow external validation and, and external viewpoints to drive us, we've given away all of our power. And so one of the, the things I'm really excited to talk about here, because you've thought so deeply about it, is what are the things that keep people from expressing themselves, from feeling confident? It's like you deal with a lot of shyness and social anxiety. So what are the primary things that are getting in the way of people trusting their curiosity, their listening, their statements, their own story? What gets in the way? Oftentimes it's embarrassment and shame tied to past experiences. And those past experiences have evoked emotions and those emotions we've then given a narrative to and put a story to. And unfortunately, those emotions and the story we've attached to it has now fused that to our being, who we are. So uh, this is a concept in psychology called diffusion. It's detachment from those emotions and those narratives that aren't serving us. So a big part of this is understanding that those past experiences that have caused you some shame or embarrassment do not define you. And every day you make a choice to either become who you want to be or to live in the past. And unfortunately, some of this shame and embarrassment also comes from the fact that we haven't expressed these thoughts and feelings to anyone. Hmm. And the simple act of expressing our insecurities, our thoughts and feelings gives them less weight, control, and power over our lives. So that's why I think we gel so much in the work that we do with men is because just creating this space, right? You're asking me, what do you do? And I'm like, I create experiences that free people, give them the tools to create whatever they want. I'm not telling you this is AJ's blueprint for social success, follow it, build it the same way. I'm trying to give all of these listeners and everyone who follows the art of charm the tools to build whatever they want. And sometimes in order to reach for that new tool, we have to put down our old tools and our old narratives that we're holding on to and that baggage that's come along with it. So expressing yourself is not easy. Hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of us don't feel comfortable expressing ourselves at home or at work or where we socialize. And we try our best to create an environment in LA where you can do just that. You can express yourself free of judgment. And when we do, we start to remove that embarrassment and shame that's been the driving narrative. And so when you think, I want to make it real for people that are listening. And so when you think about those stories that we're living into, those beliefs, what are the, what are the ones? Because I'm sure that there's trends that emerge, right? For people that are yeah. dealing with this trend improve. So what are some of the most common stories that you hear and how do you break through those? So one of the things I do is I share my narrative on Tuesday and my narrative really is my dad was a single dad and he was blue collar guy was in the Navy didn't get a college education and ended up in a, a pretty hard on his body manual labor job and growing up he wanted me and my sister as a single dad he had custody to get an education he felt that 
as long as we got a great education, we would have more freedom than he had. And because of that, I went into science and medicine and my narrative as a kid was I'm going to be a doctor. Then as I got into college and I actually got a job in a hospital, I was miserable. And a lot of the doctors that I worked with who are not family friends and, and people in my life gave me the unvarnished truth about medicine and it, it scared me. I was like, I don't want to do this. Hmm. This dream that I had built up and the story that I had built up is not who I want to become. But as you can imagine, you know, my dad was pretty disappointed to hear and frustrated and even angry that he had spent all this time and money and energy to get me educated, to provide an opportunity and, and a path to success medicine that was clear cut. And I had to make a decision. Do I want to become a doctor or do I want to leave? And it was a, one of the hardest decisions of my life, but I told my dad that I was going to drop out. Uh, well, first I wasn't going to go to medical school, which frustrated him. And I was going to take a gap year and I wanted to travel through Europe. And my dad said, get a job. Uh, more colored language than that, but get a job. <laughs> and I had this biology degree and I wanted to have a solid job that would pay for me to go to Europe was my goal. So I got a job doing research and I actually enjoyed it. I was in a lab. I was able to create experiments and do everything on my own terms. And with that, I started to get some good results and I got really excited. And my boss in the lab said, hey, have you ever considered a PhD? And I was like, no, actually I hadn't. I, this is my first real research experience. He's like, well, I think you're good at research and I, th I think you have a passion for it. Maybe you should consider getting a PhD. And oh, by the way, you could tell your dad you're still a doctor sort of thing. So I started down the PhD track and my boss at the time greased the wheels. He got me an interview at the University of Michigan. I applied there and only there and I got in. Now, when I got there, I was surrounded by people who were top achie overachievers, type A's, who had a ton of experience in research, wanted to be PhDs, some of them their entire lives. So I had some imposter syndrome creep up, and then I decided to drop out and pursue the podcast and create a coaching company. And that crushed my dad. Hmm. He was not happy at all, especially... Uh, being raised strict Catholic, going into the dating realm, talking about sexuality. My dad was just uncomfortable with the whole thing and very frustrated with me. And I was forced to make this decision of like, do I choose my happiness or choose my dad's happiness and the narrative he had built for me? And I selfishly chose my happiness. And it took a while for my dad to come back around. But ultimately that choice and having to deal with the fallout and sometimes even the regret, like, did I make the right choice and, and sharing that in a frank way and giving the clients and the program an opportunity now to see the flip side of that. Right. So we think about my past, obviously going to school and, and disappointing my dad. We think about the values my dad instilled in me and education being a big one. Now we think about my future and my future is educating. So his passion and his value of education passed through to me. And when we think about one of my fears around my future is, is still to this day disappointing my dad and, and understanding that even though he's passed, he really thought that this business was not the best idea and not a path to success for me. And that's become a driving force in me staying with the business for 12 years <laughs> through all the ups and downs going yeah. on 13 now. And, it has become a, a real motivator in my life. And when I share that story 
and try to express those three parts of my narrative, a lot of times it really clicks for the audience because a lot of us struggle with our parents' narrative that they have for us and living up to their hopes and dreams for us and sometimes making decisions that are for us instead of them. And I feel like that internal conflict with family is, is very common. And when I express that story and, and share that, even to this day, there are some family members, although my dad has passed, there are some distant family members who still doubt that I'm doing the right thing and, and still have some frustration with me. The realness of that, I think, for a lot of uh, the audience in the program especially is exactly what they need to hear to start taking control of their life and making decisions for themselves. And I've been fortunate enough to have a number of family members express happiness now yeah. and seeing me happy and seeing me living in line with my values uh, has certainly changed things for the better. It's interesting. You use the words that I selfishly pursued happiness, but I think what's become abundantly clear is that to pursue your happiness was ultimately not a selfish act, right? If, yeah. I, how I many, think how a lot many, of my Catholic guilt is... <laughs> how, many, how, many people, how many people have gone through your retreats now? So we've worked with over 3,600 guys. Yeah, 3,600 in, in live events, and not to mention, you know, how many millions have listened to the podcast. And um, so one of the things that you talked about there was in the idea of you tell your own narrative, your story, how that kind of impacted how you were showing up with people, maybe holding back. In your experience, one of the reasons why I feel a connection to you, again, is because of your commitment to these live experiences and the real transformative power of deep work and practicing these techniques and not just spouting it from a stage or even behind a mic, but really doing it in, in, in person. And so what, what happens when people get real about the stories and things that they're holding, that they're holding back? I think a big part of it, and, and you can even see it in their body languages, they, they drop this weight on their shoulders and they stand a little taller and they appear more fully present because when we hold on to these negative narratives and, and thoughts and beliefs about ourselves, and, and sometimes the embarrassment and shame that came from past experiences, it can feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. And that weight can lead to a lack of self-expression, a lack of belief and self-worth. And as you can imagine, when we start to remove our own value, our worth, and our ability to express ourselves, we no longer are human. And it's a, it's a very dangerous place to be when we work with clients who have allowed their social anxiety to wall themselves off from human connection. You know, at the end of the day, we are a herd species. We depend on community for survival. It's hardwired into our DNA. And you think about in prison, what's the worst thing that we can do is we can put someone in isolation. Yeah. And it's been compared to some of the worst torture, waterboarding, etc. That isolation, that disconnection from other humans is detrimental to our mental and physical health. So a driving force of the company has been to facilitate personal growth and give our students the tools for self-expression and connection. And I love watching those clients grow and expand not only in the week that they're with us, but the years and now decades since their program. And we've worked really hard to create a community of guys who support one another and feel fully supported by me and Johnny. And we call them family. And even here coming out to New York, you know, I'm going out with, uh, past graduates uh, this evening 
for some drinks and I stay in touch with clients I've worked with 12, 13 years ago now, which is, is pretty crazy to think. And so what's, what's ultimately driving you forward at this point? Why is this what you're here to do at least right now? Well, I think it's twofold. You know, I, I love to pretend that it's all, uh, not about my own selfishness, but part of it is understanding how much these tools have opened up possibility and, and opportunity in my life. You know, there were times in my life where I would sheepishly go to events and avoid talking to people and beat myself up after and think about what could have been, what if. Uh, now I actually enjoy going to events and those events have created one conversation that led to connection, that led to all these other opportunities in my life. And it's so fun because over the 10 plus years we've been in business and running the podcast, people always ask us like, how do you get all these guests on your show? How do you know these people? it's all through networks and relationships. Very few of our guests just email us in cold and say, Hey, I want to come on the show. Most, if not all of even the big name guests we've had on the show have come through our network. And I never would have thought that was possible being a kid from Detroit who's introverted. So I know the power that these tools have given me and control in my life and opportunity they've presented. And then the flip side of that is watching transformation in others. And I do one of our first conversations we talked about, and this, this is actually a little bit of a spirited debate because of the technology work you do, is this idea that I think technology is harming our ability to feel connected as humans. And I think, unfortunately, the tool technology is not being harnessed for good. It's oftentimes allowing us to think more negatively about ourselves, to be more judgmental of others. And it's rewiring our brains to feel more disconnected than we really are. Uh, whether it's paying for something at lunch, just on your phone. You know, I went to pick up my lunch here at, at dig in and I didn't even interact with anyone. I just went in, my bag was on the shelf and I left. Mm. And I think about so many of our clients and so many people are living their life with their AirPods on, not interacting with one another. Yeah, it's, it's, that was one of our first conversations was really around uh, my friend Tristan Harris has this company, the Center for Humane Technology, and he talks about it as human downgrading, is that as technology is upgrading, our humanness is basically evolving in the opposite direction, and that we're losing the ability to connect, to express ourselves, which ultimately are these fundamental human needs. So where I pushed back on AJ was the idea of, you know, with Tribute, I spent the past five years building a company that has helped hundreds of thousands of people to share their appreciation. And while we're certainly nowhere like the hundreds of millions of users that are going to be using Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp this month, um, that these types of technologies are out there to have a podcast like the art of charm that reaches millions of people to have something like tribute that's hitting thousands of people every single day. And that it's just something that is so fundamental that the, the architects of our digital world need to begin to consider is that, you know, is faster, more truly better. And I, I follow a guy named Chris Ryan who wrote sex at dawn, and he's writing a new book about you know how society is kind of devolving in a way where we can look at metrics of uh, success like they're very important, like poverty, like war, like maternal wellness, and all these things are improving. But then if you look at some of the more social emotional progress of anxiety, depression, human connection, they're almost all trending in the opposite direction. And so while a lot of our basic human needs are met, some of the more emotional, uh, community-driven aspects are really missing from our lives. And so it's important that as we start to course correct, 
you know, hopefully as smaller entities like you and I are, are getting more of a hold, we see some of these bigger companies who are starting to, to take note. And I think one of the interesting ones since we met in November is, is Instagram removing the like feature. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah. So my friend Tobias actually delivered a, a, like a keynote address to Facebook last year, and now he's watching all this stuff happen. But for those of you who don't know, uh, one of the features that Instagram is already basically testing throughout Europe, I believe, and is about to uh, migrate over to the U.S. It's almost certainly going to happen is they're going to remove the like counter on your posts so that you'll still be able to share this content, but the pressure to be perceived as having something that is liked or even to measure the success of your own experience based off how many likes you get is something that they'll remove because it's been proven how detrimental it is to our subjective well-being. It's, it's an interesting test in that, at least my understanding of it, is you'll still know what the likes are, but others won't know what the likes are. So I like I like that. I, What's your thought? I I'm still a little nervous because it's the quantification of this value that we're talking about. The quantification of human attention, appreciation and acceptance that I think is is driving us crazy. And I don't think those are things that we need to necessarily be quantifying. Uh, and certainly that information can lead to all of this mental illness and loneliness that we're talking about. And you know, one of the studies we talked about on the show recently is they surveyed adults uh, in uh, 30 through 60 uh, years old, and they broke them into groups. And basically, when they did the survey in the 50s, it asked, how many people uh, do you consider close friends? The average was three. And they asked the same survey now, and the average is zero for people in the 30 to 40 group. It gets a little bit better for 50 and 60 year olds. They still feel connected, but we are seeing that the number of people we feel closely connected to yeah. is dropping considerably. But we look at the number of likes we're getting, the number of friends we have, the number of followers, and you know we could even laugh that a lot of times it's inflated, right? It's, it's a number that we're chasing, and when we quantify things like that, we lose the humanness of connection that we all crave and need to be mentally and physically well. Yeah, I, I oftentimes challenge people with their, their social media habits, and it's this idea that, again, that if you are lurking, that like that behavior is almost always going to leave you feeling empty and envious at the end of the day. But if you go from lurking to even liking, I just talked about that shift from lurking to liking. And it's like, how often do you see something on social media that you like that you don't like? And like what I think about in that process is that, so these are studies that I found out recently have actually been funded by uh, Facebook investors. So I don't know how much I trust them, but there are studies that were done on Facebook about um, what would happen to users who were using some of these social media technologies more actively by liking and commenting. And so what they did is they, they basically took these studies, these people, and people who were just basically going through for a specific amount of time a day, whether it was an hour or two hours, but they weren't liking or commenting. And then they had people that were actively liking and commenting, just whatever they would naturally, but just focused on it. And the people who were liking and commenting were leaving their experience feeling better. And so what I always say is like that idea of like when I like something, I always challenge myself to comment which has an impact on on my experience overall. And I think that a lot of times that, that resonates for people there. But but yeah, ultimately it's it's not a replacement. And I think that in some ways it can be a boost, but it's certainly not a replacement. What I would love, and if Facebook is listening, which I hope, 
is, and, and I do this uh, personally. So for example, uh, a buddy of mine has been working on getting in shape and he posted typical ab picture on social media. And of course, friends are liking and commenting, fire emojis, thumbs up. I reached out to him and had a conversation with him. It was like, great work, man. I know it's tough losing weight. I would love when you click like or you click comment if they prompted you. I mean, they already have everyone's mobile number. Yeah. It, Facebook has that information. If they prompted you, if you want to text or f- call this person huh. that you just liked, to, to take that information that we're, we're receiving from Facebook, but actually communicate the value that everyone's looking for. Yeah. You know, I think the digital like is great, but the human voice of literally appreciating someone for the hard work they put in on their body or that amazing trip they were on or the engagement they just had or the birthday they're celebrating, you know, HBD is not a replacement for genuinely wishing someone a happy birthday, whether in person or over the phone. And so this is what we talk about when we think of human downgrading is that by Facebook, if you remember like on your birthdays, when you first started on Facebook, you'd go there on your birthday and it's happy birthday, man. I love doing this with you and people expressing authentic thoughts. Whereas now my birthday gives me anxiety. Yeah. Cause you go and you see nothing and it's the wash of all these things. You're counting the number and not the content. Cause you know, you can press one and that'll set an automatic happy birthday to the person. And so what Facebook or Instagram is optimizing for is not, human connection it is interaction it's how frequently and consistently can we get people to use this site because that's how we're going to make ad dollars is as much time as you spend on the site and so the person who's designing do they get paid based on you feeling good or you using the site as much as humanly possible and it's the latter and so it's kind of these idea of these optimizations of basically by by making things optimized for just interaction versus like what is a quality interaction which is, you know, I think what you and I have spent so much of our time talking about is like, what is a quality interaction? So I, I saw a quote that I love. I think you liked this one recently. It was my friend Clay who posted this, this, uh, this picture quote on Instagram. And it says, is your content look at me content or learn from me content? And that frame, again, was so helpful for me. Again, it's the way that I look at social media is I oftentimes only post when I have something that I'm really excited to share. Um, and even like, sometimes as an artist, like I do love taking photographs. So if I go to Greece or if I go to Italy, like I want to take photos and share them. But the idea of that frame of look at me content and you've talked about attention, right? And having that base fundamental need. It's just interesting of, uh, to evaluate that behavior, which all of us are conditioned into now. But when you do it, if just to pause and look at it, and ask yourself, what am I getting out of this? Yeah. Like, is this just look at me for look at me, right? And if you see some of that content from friends that is just a photo of them somewhere cool, what is the point? What are you getting out of it? You know, and so for those that are listening, of like another frame to evaluate your own content of like, is this look at me or look or learn from me? And if it's learned from me, then awesome, because you're adding value, right. right? Yeah. I think this attention economy that we're in. Uh, obviously data is king, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. they're monetizing our attention. They're, they're literally turning a human value and a human need and they're taking our attention from conversations like this to our screens. And when this attention goes to the screen, we're breaking that ability to connect with one another. And it's fascinating to me and we still have a long way to go to harness technology in my mind 
for connection. It's cool to see Tribute doing that. It's cool to see engineers now at Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, thinking about these things. But in those moments where someone in your feed is posting, look at me content, Mm. hop on the phone, take them out to lunch, celebrate them, appreciate them, give them that attention that they're looking for outside of the like button and you will find that your connections, your relationships are deepened. Well, you know what it is? I think that even using your frame of that, you're taking it from the attention being satisfied to the appreciation of like, hey, man, I see you. Yeah. Cool. You know, just that. I'm taking it to the next level. And what that does for your own relationships, I think, is, is again, super powerful. Um, so, you know, to come out of the technology conversation uh, a little bit, um, I'm curious is now how many people have you had on your own podcast? So we've had, I almost said 800 episodes, uh, and we've had a, a number of episodes that didn't air, unfortunately as well. Um, but at, at this point, yeah, we're nearing a, a thousand. When you, guests. when you laugh, what came, when you say that didn't air. So as someone who's been doing this for again, 12 years, it's yeah. crazy, which is like you were really on the cusp of this as it started. And so if you look back, can I, I want to hear a highlight and a low light. So just following your frame again, let's start with the highlight. So if you look back over the podcast, was there one conversation that personally just transformed your way of being or just shifted how you're operating or was just so much fun? So what occurs for you is like a highlight of the show so far. So, you know, one of the first things that jumped into my mind, just free association. And again, it just shows you how much I I value, you know, my father's approval. So when we started the podcast, it was in my basement in Ann Arbor and it was late night. We'd record uh, typically after some gin and tonics. So if you go to the Art of Charm podcast, you skip to episodes one through 10. (laughs) You'll, You'll literally hear glasses clinking as we're cheersing our gin and tonics. We would often have a few, enjoy the conversation, and then we'd just unwind and turn on the TV. And the TV show back then that was all the rage late at night was Dog the Bounty Hunter. Yeah. And my dad happened to really enjoy this show. So it was right around episode 10, and we had sort of run out of our own content, right? We weren't planning on having a 1,000-plus episode show running 10 years. So we hit the ground running, recorded, and just blasted all of the information we knew about connecting and socializing and, and attraction. And then we're like, Oh, we need to start interviewing some people and get some of their knowledge. And we made a list of people we wanted to interview, uh, some clearly in the pickup artist dating space. And then just like, man, who would be fun to talk to? Yeah. And dog, the bounty hunter was thrown on that list. (laughs) Yeah. And we were trying to figure out how to get him on the show. So we reached out to uh, A&E's PR. And of course, this was before everyone was on Twitter, Instagram, etc. So we didn't have like a DM easy way to access him. And we ended up calling his bond shop in Hawaii and pretending we needed bail. Yes. And we got through, basically there was two gatekeepers at the time. And we're like, no, we really just want to talk to Dog. And we got him on. And we kind of ambushed him and we're like, hey, so sorry, but can we get 15 minutes? We're recording a podcast. And of course, he had no idea what a podcast was, but he enjoyed it. He brought his wife on and we had like 15 minute conversation. It was one of the shortest episodes ever. Hit publish. And of course, my dad was on me. Why are you thinking about dropping out of grad school? What's wrong with you? And I was like, check this out. And I put my iPod 
connected to the radio. Yes. Driving with my dad. And he was like, wait, dog is talking to you in your basement <laughs> in Ann Arbor. Like, what is going on here? Uh, so that was definitely a highlight, winning my dad's approval. Wow. I think what I will say about all of these conversations over the years is more about the patterns of sort of what successful people talk about the way yeah. they view the world. So it's less about this one, you know, mind melting conversation, but it's more the sum total of lessons over the course of running the show as long as we have. And the big things that I've picked up on and have been able to incorporate in my own life are the rituals that allow us to make less decisions. This is actually funny because I, I'm going to be recording a YouTube video on decision fatigue and I, I want you to participate in it. So when we're done with this, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. But when it comes to decision making, it's a battery that we all have and it gets depleted when we have to continually make decisions. It's like the cheesecake factory. You sit it there looking at that menu and you're just like, I don't even, someone it. pick it for me. Yeah. And successful people understand that importance in decision making. And a lot of times successful people are paid strictly to make decisions, Yeah. you know? And with that, what they do is they create habits and rituals that involve not having to make decisions in the morning and not having to make decisions in the evening. They wall off those moments in their day to set themselves up for success. And in the 700 plus episodes, we've learned about all the different rituals that people have morning and night. And some of them I've implemented and liked, some of them I haven't, but I've really started to understand the importance of bookending your day and removing technology in, in those moments has been a big part of that for me. So that's the part that I love about the show. I also love those moments where I go in and I'm nervous for the conversation. So for example, we had Eric Weinstein on recently in our decision-making month, and uh, he's an intellectual that both Johnny and I love, love the conversations that he has, the way he views things and, and brings mathematics to a more accessible place for a lot of uh, listeners. So I went into that butterflies, nerves, how mm -hmm. is this going to go? Prep, prep, prep. And of course, the prep goes out the window and it's a really great conversation. And, and we had that opportunity to have a tremendous conversation. We went well over the time that he had allotted for the conversation. So that was another moment where like, okay, you know, we're in it, we're having fun and creating a moment that the audience can enjoy too. The low lights, um, and not to name names, but the low lights are typically when our expectations are not met. You know, they're a big name, they have a great marketing engine, they do a great job of presenting the best version of themselves online. Uh, and, you know, as we see in, in today's social media world, we're all photoshopped and edited to be the highlight reel. Uh, but in conversation, especially podcast conversation, where you got to go a little deeper and you can't cut and edit yourself, we have been let down by some guests over 10 plus years where we went in thinking that, man, this is someone we idolize and look up to and came out of the conversation disappointed. And, and sometimes, as I said, they just didn't even air. Yeah. I, well, one of my lowlights was, so for many listeners who listened to one of our first podcasts with Warren Farrell, who's like this multi-time yeah, had him on. Like bestseller. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we had this incredible conversation and he had just said, you know what? He's like, you're one of, you're one of my favorite minds of like this generation. And then 
boop, my brand new MacBook Pro that we're recording virtually just turns off. Never happened in five years with my like 2013. It just shuts off. And I had to call this guy and say, we lost the entire thing. But fortunately, he was really gracious and we did it again. But um, but yeah, man, it, it, is a, it is a journey for sure. Technology. Te- <laughs> technology, exactly. It was, it was definitely uh, a sign. And so, you know, as we're kind of moving towards a close, I'm just curious of, you talked about in some of those episodes where you're getting ready to talk to someone that you really admire, that you're nervous. And one of my favorite subjects is, because I think it's subjective, is that what I find with a lot of people that I work with is that where they feel the most nerves is when they're about to connect with someone that they perceive as greater than in some way. So when I'm getting ready to talk to Eric Weinstein, who I perceive as and is smarter than I am, uh, <laughs> in, some, in some ways. I will admit that. Yeah. Yes, and so, so who is smarter than I am, who is more successful than I am, who is more famous, is that I feel like that's so often the trigger. And what is your advice or even your own process? Because you do that all the time at the highest levels. When you, when you have that trigger, right, of like nerves, of like how's this going to go or this person's like smarter than I am, how do you prepare for that? What's your process? So a uh, big part of my process is exercise. Mm. I wasn't expecting that. love burning off that nervous energy with a good workout because that energy that's nervous can lead to the endorphins that create that space for me to be fully present. Mm-hmm. So exercise is something we recommend to all of our listeners and our bootcamp participants because, again, it changes you physiologically. So exercise, especially exercise that's repetitious and over the long haul, uh, will provide your body with neurotransmitters and hormones that allow you to be more engaging, more present, and ultimately in a happier place, a more relaxed place. So when I know I have a big guest, Mm. I have my personal trainer kick the crap out of me in the gym Uh, before. So that beat out a lot of the nervous energy for me going into that Eric episode. The other thing that I will say is those episodes we prep more for. So I do everything that I can from consuming all the content I can find from that person and really try to come at it from a different angle. So with our episodes, you know, there are a ton of talk podcasts out there. You can hear Eric's story on a bunch of even bigger shows than ours. So we try not to focus so much on the story and the stuff that he's said so many times that he's not even present. Mm. You know, we all kind of have our scripted lines and our elevator pitch. Yeah. So what we try to do in the moments that I love more than anything are when the guest just goes, that's a great question because that creates a space of something, you know, has not been recorded before is an opportunity now to get them out of that pattern that they're in of repetitious. This is just going to be another interview sound bites and get them into a moment of, okay, they have to think they have to reflect. And the best moments are when they actually agree with us. (laughs) Sometimes they don't. Um, but that's what I really strive for. So it's, it's the prep, uh, and it's the exercise that that lead to me shaking those nerves. Yeah, beautiful, man. And so for the people who are listening to this, if they were going to go and take one action right now to fundamentally step onto the path of transforming the conversations they're having, I want to loop back to one conversation at a time. What is the one thing that someone can do to embrace this idea, this methodology, when they step away from this podcast? 
pick up the phone. And if that person is in another location, you can't physically meet in person, then phone call suffices, but simply appreciate that person. And the reason I say this is because I don't want our listeners running out there and having a bunch of conversations and and trying to step so far outside of their comfort zone. Find someone who's already in your life. This is going to be an easier conversation for you, but oftentimes we don't appreciate those that we're closest to that are in our life. We sometimes, unfortunately, take them for granted. Pick up the phone and appreciate something about their personality and their emotional support that they've provided you over the years. It's an exercise that's part of a bigger exercise for all of our boot camp participants. But that one thing uh, hits the value point I talked about. So it goes beyond just giving someone your attention. It actually gives them some appreciation. And the other thing is, especially for those of us who are feeling a little beat down and maybe uh, questioning our own self-worth, it actually selfishly provides an opportunity for that person to share back what they appreciate about us. And that can be really helpful in our moments of great need when we're feeling a little down, we're feeling a little disconnected. And again, it's leading by example, right? Shining that flashlight into the cave when we appreciate others. Uh, and this is a great phrase that I, I got from Jesse Elder. Uh, we appreciate. So what we appreciate appreciates, meaning hmm. those relationships grow in value the more we appreciate people in our lives. There's actually a study. I do a, a talk for corporate culture clients, and it's about the snowball effect, is that there's actually research that shows that when uh, managers and senior level executives articulate appreciation or gratitude for their employees, that they're 100% more likely to receive it back. So truth Absolutely. to that statement, man. And so you've been doing this for 12 years, and I don't know if I have really maybe any any close friends in my life who've been doing something for 12 years, and it feels like you are truly a man on a mission who I think I, I'm loving this chat and also just this budding relationship because you're doing it from a place of integrity, of, again, of not seeking the spotlight in an authentic way, but what is going to have the greatest impact on people. And so if you look down the road considering the idea of legacy at the end of the day, when you are gone, what is, what do you want people to say you did here? It's funny you mentioned legacy because it's actually speaking of Facebook. It's a, a quote on my profile. Legacy is greater than currency. And it's something that I really truly try to live my life by. I think the more that I've chased currency and, and just extrinsic value, the more empty and, and inadequate and insecure I felt the legacy that I want to look back on and you know, this comes pretty near and dear to me and and coming from a broken home and and being a child of divorce and certainly uh, raised with a single parent is, and this goes along uh, with Dr. Warren Farrell's work is, is really, you know, the importance of family community and when we don't have the tools to build solid relationships, whether it's with a spouse or best friends or have an outlet for connection, we really are physiologically damaged. So for me, I would love to be able to look back on my life and know that everyone who's worked with the Art of Charm has been able to find meaningful relationships, whether it's from spouse or friends or even family. I know family can be difficult to build relationships with too. And these tools that we've tried to assimilate in our own lives and incorporate and live out Uh, I know have such great benefit on your emotional well-being and happiness. So I look back at 
my clients and I think about the weddings we've been invited to and the relationships mm. they've been able to create for themselves and the career changes that they've been empowered through the relationships and network they've built. And that's really the legacy that I look back on. Yeah, man. Well, you are already doing it. So cheers, brother. I'm enjoying this. I love the show, you know, again, and what's just really shining through to me is how, how much deeper this is than tips and tricks to achieve use the word, uh, external outcome or what is it outcome dependence versus outcome, process dependence. outcome dependence versus process of like giving people a way of being that is not only generative to just expressing themselves but providing spaces for other people to feel safe to feel seen and so i love it man it's great and so for people who want to take the next step what is the best place where they can look you up and dig into your work yeah if you've enjoyed this conversation the art of charm podcast is a great place to get more of our insights and we bring on great guests every month we have a theme and we try to bring on experts on that theme and then give the AOC perspective and, and share our own life lessons around mastering those topics if you want to step outside your comfort zone push and learn about your own social skills and grow them we have a great free challenge theartofcharm.com slash challenge with a vibrant Facebook community uh, again to really connect with people who are working on themselves and, and value relationships and communication. Beautiful. And we will have all that stuff linked into the show notes. So again, it is the internal journey that leads to external success. AJ, thank you so much for your time, brother. Love thank the you chat. for having me. And we're out.